Hello there, me hearties, and welcome back to the Bible Pirate Podcast with stories beyond the horizon. My name's Matt Valor. This is episode six. It's 2018. Happy New Year. I hope you had a great Christmas and enjoyed our Christmas special with Star Wars and the Christmas story and everything. Big thanks again to all of you who've got in touch. The Bible Pirate crew is growing and uh, I really appreciate all your feedback. If you know someone who would like this podcast, then why not share the love and send them a link? There's room aboard for many more. We're continuing to sail this week in the waters of uh, the prologue to Genesis, chapters 1 to 11. And we've reached the end. It's not quite the end of series 1 because I'll do a, a couple more episodes, I think at least, just wrapping up the whole 11 chapters with some different perspectives on that whole prologue. But this week, we are with the Tower of Babel in chapter 11. I've been looking forward to talking about this because I feel like it's one of the most relevant stories for our time. You probably know it well, it's a pretty simple story. All the earth speak one language and they travel east and they settle in the plain called Shinar in Babylonia and they decide to bake bricks and they say to each other, let's build a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens and let's make a name for ourselves. Name in Hebrew is Shem. Let's make a name for ourselves or else we will be smashed open and scattered all over the face of the earth, is my translation. So Yahweh came down to see the city and the tower that the sons of the Adam had built. He said, look, they are one people with one language. If this is how they begin, then nothing will stop their plans. Let's all go down there and confuse their language so that they can't understand each other. So Yahweh smashed open and scattered them all over the face of the earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its Shem, its name, was Barthel, because there Yahweh, Barthel, that's confused, the language of the whole earth. And the chapter finishes by naming the descendants of Shem, which is Noah's first son, all the way down to Abraham, which is where the next series will begin in chapter 12 of Genesis with the story of Abraham uh, and everything that follows. And that's really where we get from this kind of primordial prologue into a more historical narrative. But the story of the tower, the city of Babel itself, is the last thought before we make that move. It's the kind of concluding idea of this prologue. And it's such a simple story, but it keeps giving up meaning. I mean, in one sense, it's a very basic story about human hubris. You know, humanity wants to get ahead of themselves. We want to build a massive tower that reaches really high to the heavens. But our plans are foiled. Humankind getting ahead of itself once again and finding out that we don't quite have what it takes to dominate the whole world. It's a simple, powerful morality tale. But then we also have the role of Yahweh, the God figure from amongst the Elohim, the gods, who once again is the one who is most intent on foiling humanity's dreams of greatness. It was the same in the Garden, in Eden. It was Yahweh who was the one that said to the rest of the Elohim, if we let them carry on like this, they're going to eat from the fruit of the tree of life and then they might never die. Now they have the knowledge of good and evil. We need to expel them. 
It's Yahweh of the Elohim who casts humankind out of the garden. And it is Yahweh of the Elohim who foils their plans to build the great city and disperses humankind, smashes them, scatters them across the earth. The entire biblical story is set up in this tussle between Yahweh on behalf of the Elohim, the gods, and humanity on the other side, wanting to become godlike and know and control the world. Who is in the right? Who is in the wrong? Is it just a question of power in which Yahweh of the Elohim always comes out top? Or is there any kind of negotiation to be had in the relationship between this God and the humankind that he has created? The French philosopher Jacques Derrida wrote a seminal paper on this story called, uh, in French, Détour de Babel, which really is a series of puns, just even in the name. Détour de Babel literally means uh, the Tower of Babel. But uh, Détour can also mean the twists, the tropes, the turns. Uh, it can mean some of them, from them, not just the. Uh, and then Babel, uh, the name, uh, is itself, uh, in the Hebrew root, the word for confusion. At least it's almost the word for confusion. It's slightly confused as to whether it is, in fact, the word for confusion. And what Derrida explores through his essay is the way that language becomes confused. And he em embodies this in his title, uh, even to the point that there is a confusion across languages. Bavel is a Hebrew word, and yet we have translated it, in his case, into French, in our case, into English. They say Babel in French, Babel in English, or we have the word to babble, which is a confused speech. Uh, and th this is a Hebrew word, a proper name, uh, but that also is a verb that means to confuse. Uh, how do you translate a proper name or a verb? Uh, do you translate them differently? Well, of course you do, because a proper name designates something, but a verb is describing an experience. And so one translates in one way, another uh, is almost untranslatable. And so the fact that Détour de Babel sounds like a detour in English, a detour of Babel, uh, is another pun, another confusion of the language that hides any clarity about its meaning. Now, if all that is just making you think, uh, hold on a minute, what now? Uh, then that's exactly the point. We assume when we read the story of the Tower of Babel that when Yahweh comes down and confuses the language, that that created multiple language, that this is the origin myth of the uh, development of multiple languages. But that isn't actually stated in the story. The story simply says that the whole earth spoke one language, and that Yahweh came down and confused that language. Derrida points out in a footnote that it has been demonstrated that High German and some forms of Chinese actually have the same linguistic roots. The validity of the story of the Tower of Babel is not actually to be able to trace the historical evolution of language and show that it all came from one point. The point, at least in Derrida's essay, is that language itself at its very heart is already confused. And in this sense, the story of the Tower of Babel is the perfect origin myth for Derrida's whole philosophical project. Derrida's philosophy was crucial in helping postmodernism to express 
how things don't have to be as they seem, indeed, as they are. If Foucault showed us that all knowledge is a construction designed by those who have power, then Derrida shows us that the language used to construct that knowledge is inherently unstable, and therefore the potential for deconstruction, for change, is alive and well. Derrida is often misunderstood and misused, often by those who haven't read him properly or simply don't want to understand. His philosophy is often turned against any form of knowledge as a kind of manifesto for total meaninglessness. But that really is to miss the whole point of what Derrida is saying about language. His whole insight is not that language doesn't have the capacity to mean anything. Of course it does. That's why I'm making a podcast and you're listening to it. That's why we write letters and emails and post things on Facebook. It's because when we chat, we understand one another. We have the capacity to communicate. What Derrida does is to show that while language might be sufficiently stable for us to do these kinds of communication, that does not equal, it is not true, therefore, to extrapolate and say that language is entirely stable, that in its entirety it is completely controlled, that knowledge is something that can be entirely locked down, that most fundamentally, we can never be certain. Despite our monumental capacity to communicate, there is always an uncertainty. That's why lawyers make so much money, even in our most anally retentive form of language, legal speak. There's still so much room for manoeuvre that people can make vast sums of money by reading legal documents differently. The point is not that we don't have the capacity for clarity. The point is that we do have the capacity for confusion. And if knowledge is constructed by the powerful, then confusion is a tool of resistance. So the city, the tower of Barvel, becomes the site of this confusion, this strategic confusion, in which Yahweh of the Elohim has introduced a confusion within the hubris of humankind and their colonial ambition. Humankind wants to gather together to build a great city, to, to resist separation and confusion, so that they are not split open and scattered over the face of the earth and in that coming together in building this great tower in trying to describe and define and force a great city for themselves they open themselves to their own deconstruction for in trying to be like the gods and make a name a shem for themselves they are given another name the name of a god Derrida quotes Voltaire on Babel, that the name itself is a construction of two separate Semitic words, that in the ancient languages, Ba, in, in all ancient Semitic languages, designates the father, and Bel, the god, God the father, this is the city of the god, and yet also, undeniably, says Voltaire, it also, of course, signifies confusion. 
That is the Hebrew word that the name evokes. So in trying to make a name for themselves, they are given another name. In trying to determine a genealogy for themselves, they are reminded of a different origin, that God is their father. And yet God himself is evoking confusion. The Shemites, as Derrida describes them, are scattered because their desperation to come together and provide an origin of their being is the very thing that forces them apart and disseminates them across the earth. This is a profound piece of theological commentary on this story, that the role played by Yahweh, the God figure, is to take the people who would make a name for themselves and to rename them. But not just to rename, but to name as a possession. To meet their challenge for power, for possession, with its own naming as a possession. The people of God, the city of God, the city of Bel, God, Ba, their father. But to read this possessive naming not just as some kind of counter-hegemony, not just meeting one power with another, but meeting one power with another that confuses, that at its very essence undermines, deconstructs, problematizes the construction of humankind in its quest for greatness. The story of Babel is the story of an original confusion. That in the very name of God, in the very idea of Yahweh of the Elohim, from whom in this Genesis story all of humanity derives its being, there is a confusion at the origin. That in the language with which we narrated a story to give us an idea of where we came from, there is in fact a confusion inherent in the language that problematizes that original story, that we cannot really know from where we come, that we cannot really know from whom we come, that we cannot really know whose we are, to where we belong, that we are scattered and our home is Bavel, the home of confusion, the Father God. Now this story of Babel comes as a piece of resistance literature at the time when Babylon ruled the world. We've said this in previous episodes, most of this early part of Genesis is being shaped through the experience of Babylonian exile and then afterwards as the Israelites try to make sense of that totally cataclysmic experience in their history. And Babel in the Hebrew imagination is the origin of Babylon. Being subject to Babylonian rule was a totally disorientating experience. Babylon was very unlike the Persian Empire that followed it. If you lived in the Babylonian Empire, you were subject to one language, one pantheon of gods. There was no devolved political rule. All of the key leaders of any conquered nations or cities were taken to Babylon. It was one ring to rule them all and in the darkness bind them in the land of Babylonia. Babylon is the original Mordor. But we find ourselves now in an unprecedented moment in history. Over the last 100 years, the huge advances in transport infrastructure 
in electronic communications, in the electronic movement of money, in the development of international institutions like the UN, and perhaps most disruptive of all in the invention and spread of the internet. These have created a bewilderingly homogenous world that we call globalisation, where the world used to be full of far-flung places. Now the world seems small, increasingly homogenised, with even one language now starting to dominate as American English becomes the lingua franca of the internet. The complexity of the situation of globalisation is that while this homogeneity spreads, there is a reaction in the form of localisation where ethnic identities are reasserted, local cultures are rediscovered. Uh, the more that globalisation advances, the more this reaction finds force and people have to determine a cultural identity which previously was just assumed as we increasingly become lost in the great soup of globalisation, we must therefore at the same time try and determine who we are. Where in fact do we come from? What language do we speak? Who are our people? But the story of Babel is the story of the confusion of origins. It is the loss of certainty in stories about where we come from. The election of Donald Trump as US president and the Brexit vote in the UK to leave the European Union have both been described as reactions against globalisation. Trump's slogan, Make America Great Again, his speech at his inauguration, America First. These tap into the idea that some original identity has been lost that when manufacturing shifts to China and when Muslims are allowed into the country, that somehow something essential about America has gone. The same narrative has played out in the UK. The Brexit slogan was, take back control. There's a sense of lostness, a sense that we don't know what it means to be British anymore. The sense that once we were great, but we're not now, but most of all, a sense that things have got out of control, that we've lost a grip on the world. Now, of course, both Britain and America, we've forged our identities through empire. We understand who we are by being the biggest, the most powerful, the most able to influence. So finding identity, reclaiming identity, is about reclaiming control. The Babel story, the Babylon story, is a story for nations like Britain and the US. The story that reminds us that control is just an illusion. That the more we grasp at power, the more we will be scattered. But there is another story in here that emerges from the story of globalisation. And it is one without the bombast of people who feel they have lost the grip on the world. Many of us never had a grip on the world in the first place. Our lives are defined by confusion, the confusion produced by change, relentless change, the cycles of life and death, of movement and growth, where the stories we tell are just ballast against this relentless transience. And for us, the story of Babel is the story of confusion, the story that makes most sense of our experience of life. The idea that there should be one single origin to which we can all appeal is as ridiculous as it sounds. 
Our stories are stories of migration, like the people who moved east to settle in Shinar and then were scattered and smashed again over the face of the earth. This is the story of the exiled community for whom the Father God, as the God who is confusion, is not a confusing concept. It is simply the most natural way to describe human experience. So much religion, whether it's traditional religions or whether it's nationalism, consumerism or any other ism, tries to define and create stability so that we can feel safe in a world that is fundamentally out of control. All of these stories of stability are just babble. They are towers of hubris that get broken apart because they deny the confusion that lies within. What we need is not stability. It's not the ability to define who we are, to take back control, to make us great again, to give us a sense of origin and purpose and domination and power. What we need is quite different. What we need is translation. This is where Derrida takes us in Detour de Babel, which itself is an essay that appeared in a collection on translation. When our language is inherently confused, translation becomes our necessity. Now, most of us probably think of translation as quite a specific activity, taking one language and translating it into another language. Somebody is speaking in French or writing in French, we translate it into English. And people that do translation are people that are at least bilingual. They're competent in both languages, able to know the meaning in one language so that they can recreate it in another. But what Derrida does in Detour de Babel is to problematize this idea that there is a stable meaning that can be transferred from one language to another. The translation involves a loss. But it also, therefore, involves an opening, the possibility of a creative use of language. Now, when we set this in a much broader perspective, I think it becomes really exciting. Ten years before Derrida published his essay, George Steiner wrote a seminal book called After Babel, which was a work on translation studies which explored the complexity of how we deal with so many multiple languages in the world. Steiner's argument is that we are always translating, all of us, all the time. Because every time we make something meaningful, every time we determine a meaning, we create a new meaning in the world. Every single time we do this, we are engaging in a work of translation. There is no fixed meaning because there is no original. The original is in confusion. So following Babel... Following this story, that there is only confusion in the original, translation constantly becomes an act of creation, of recreation, but not the re-presentation of an original, but another creation, a new creation every single time we make meaning in the world. There is something I mean to mean through this podcast, 
though, uh, to be honest, I will forgive you if you've no idea what it is. But you are doing something now. You are creating a meaning from the words that I'm saying. And those two meanings might not be the same. In fact, they almost certainly won't be exactly the same. And that is a work of translation. For you to have any value in listening to this podcast requires you to do some translation of what it is that I'm saying. And that isn't a translation across a language, it's a translation within a language. And this was Derrida's point, using an English pun in his title and a Hebrew name for his French text. Translation is as much about the negotiation within a language as it is the transference of meaning from one language to another. If we see our lives as works of translation, then something really powerful happens. We allow ourselves to cast off from the moorings of an imagined certainty, to leave behind the need for a stable original, for a home, a great city to which we can return in order to know from where we come. When we approach life as a translation, we cast off from that constriction and encounter the world as a fundamentally creative adventure. The Yahweh who begins this story, this biblical narrative, will become known as we progress through it as a lawgiver. And yet, right here at the start, there is a moment where the law of Yahweh is simply, most forcefully, that there can be no law that binds. No law which is so stable that it cannot be undone. No law that is so self-evident that everybody can rally around it without ever falling into confusion. This is the law that every law requires translation. Every idea requires a reimagination. Every language requires creativity to reach across the gap of confusion. And every single person requires translation in order for us to take the journey of meaning in the world. When Frodo Baggins sets out from his hobbit hole on a quest to destroy the One Ring, he never for a moment imagines that he will eat and drink with elves, take up a sword, face the eye of Sauron, or steal his way into Mordor. Who is he if not a hobbit of the Shire, a place that has not changed for a thousand years? And yet even this hobbit, whose world is becoming subjected to one great power, must translate himself. He must open himself to a changing world and continue his journey into the east. Because the fight against homogeneity cannot be won by just asserting a different original, another equally certain basis from which to construct a different identity. The fight against homogeneity, against the centralising power of domination of towers that reach to the heavens, is won by the translation that requires an engagement with otherness, even the otherness within ourselves. 
This is the power of the story of Babel. That otherness is present in the original. That confusion is the name of the Father, God. That where we find our home is also at the same time where we lose it. But that when we lose our home in translation, we find it. Yahweh smashes open and scatters the people across the face of the earth. Is it the people he smashes open or is it the city? Either way, it seems to me that this brokenness, this disruptive, destabilizing experience is the basis for a new life. One which may lose the comforting power of the presence of the city, but which opens itself to the discomforting, transformative, translational, creative energy and meaning of an encounter with an other place and a new experience in the world. For all the homogeneity of globalization, there is still relentless diversity. According to a BBC report, there are over 300 languages currently spoken in London's schools. The cities of confusion are alive and well, and our question is whether we run from them to an illusion of safe and stable identity or whether we embrace them, whether we embrace the scattering of meaning and embrace the translation of otherness in our own selves and communities and cultures as a creative path to a future. Well, my hearties, that's all we've got time for, but we'll be back next time on Bible Pirate with more stories beyond the horizon.